Podcast. I am your host, Mike Hendley. Episode 38, Exploring the Melody in Painting with artist Cornelia Hennis. Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. I hope you're doing well. I hope for those of you who are doing Inktober, that is going, I guess, as best as can be expected. I know that uh, some people find it challenging. Myself, I've had a few days where I've had to push things off to the next day, but I am keeping on top of it. Uh, You know, you get to the point of day, you know, 16, 17, 18, it's uh, the the finish line looks much closer. So I think that um, I'll talk about that in a a minute, but I wanted to kind of hit some uh, items that came up since the last show I think you may find of interest. I'm not going to be too long on the intro here because I have a fantastic interview. And honestly, we could probably gone on for another hour and a half. But you know, at some point you have to condense that into a a podcast. And so I'm going to try and keep this short so that we can jump right into that interview because there's so many kind of nuggets of wisdom from this artist that uh, you're going to want to hear. And uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. So first, I want to highlight a, a book that came out called The Secrets of Devin Wood. And that is a book by Joe Brown, who was a guest on the show. And uh, we talked about the book in that podcast, and to see that it's finally available and you can purchase it is is incredible. So I'm putting in my order, and uh, I suggest you take a look at the uh, the link in the show notes and do the same, because it's a, just a beautiful, beautiful piece. And not only is it interesting and colorful and well done, but it may inspire you to do something similar in creating kind of a nature journal for yourself. So I would highly recommend checking out Joe Brown's book, uh, Secrets of Devon Wood. The thing that I kind of stumbled upon this week, uh, there's a, an artist illustrator by the name of Michael Relth who has a book called Picture Book by Dog. So I stumbled across his name and his work at the Lightbox Expo, which was an online conference a few weeks ago. And so he's he's been connecting a little bit more through YouTube, but he did something really kind of fun. He created this little YouTube video that is kind of video of coffee inside coffee shops, but a little bit slower motion and with just this kind of chill music playing in the background. So the intent with this is that you can watch this video and just quickly sketch on the fly as if you're sitting in a coffee house. I think it's a fantastic idea. And I think it's like maybe 45 minutes long. So if you have that itch to sketch, and obviously the pandemic is impacting our ability to get out and enjoy coffee houses, especially in uh, some areas of the world, like the city I am in right now, it really gives you that opportunity to kind of just take and and work on kind of quick sketches of round people interacting in coffee houses. I think it's a really great idea. And then Michael did a a separate kind of video where he goes through this and actually does it in real time. So you can do one of both. You could actually do it with him, or you can just watch the video, which is just music and people. I think it's a really cool idea. I hope he does more of it. I think it was really well received, and uh, I'd like to thank Michael for doing that. So I'll provide a link to that uh, YouTube video in the show notes. Since the last show, there's been, uh, I guess, 13, 14 (laughs) Inktober prompts that I've gone through. I'm not going to cover them all. I will provide a link to my Instagram where you can see them. So I'm continuing my mission of creating a single large piece with all 31 prompts, plus uh, I'll be adding some additional bits to it. And I just wanted to talk kind of generally about my challenges so far and how I feel it's going. I think this has been a real challenge for me. I This idea of creating characters and illustration has me really kind of captivated. 
but I'm really missing graphite. I'm really missing doing those nature illustrations I was doing with insects and birds. And so I'm really going to be anxious to getting back to that November 1st. But I am kind of discovering myself uh, in what I can draw and what I can illustrate uh, just out of imagination. And so I think I'm going to continue it more than I did last year. Last year after Inktober, I kind of shut it down a little bit. So as a matter of, so I'm working on this large piece, right? And I think it's about two by three foot. And so I'm dropping these individual elements. I'm trying to preserve white space for future prompts. I have no idea. I'm, I kind of have an idea maybe a day or two in advance, but not really. So what you're going to see, if you go to my Instagram and what you're going to see at the end is really kind of stream of consciousness art compiled into this one image. So I'm trying to make it all work together as kind of a nature scene where there's, you know, imagination meets realism. And, um, you know, it's good. I think it's going okay so far. There's a couple of really challenging words as there is with every year. And I find the ones that are ch- most challenging for me are the ones that are very explicit. And uh, that's that's the tough stuff. Things like rocket. I mean, rocket only has really one meaning. Um, I took it to kind of the, 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 the pop culture meaning, meaning rocket raccoon. So I did a raccoon leaning on a rock rather than actually doing a rocket. And, you know, there's things like outpost, which I think is, is fun. It's still very... Qu- very clear what an outpost is. You know, I've seen so many other people taking it different ways, and I think that that's been a lot of fun. For Dune, I'm doing a forest scene, so there's no sand in the forest. But what I did is I drew the uh, worms from uh, the movie Dune, and I guess the remake coming out. I drew one of them on the hook, on the fishing hook. And so I had that thought October 1, and that's why the hook's been empty. It is now populated with a very baby version of the uh, of the worms uh, from Dune, and uh, so you know you can bend these a little bit. I've got some um, more. I've got a couple of ideas. The one that's been really kind of bothering me that's coming up this week, I think on Tuesday, is coral, and I finally figured out how I'm going to do it. So we'll see if it actually becomes what I think, but uh, that's what I'm going to try for is uh, is doing something with coral. The other one I think is Dizzy, because I did Dizzy last year. I didn't like Dizzy last year. Dizzy's here again, and I still don't like Dizzy. So we will see. I I really, at this point, I don't have an idea what I'm going to do for Dizzy. Some of the other words I think are going to be fun. I encourage you to check out kind of what I've done so far. And the way I'm doing this is actually I take a picture at the end of every day or at the end of every drawing And then what I do is I load that picture as a layer within Procreate, and then I sketch the next day on top of it. And that helps me to figure out kind of spacing. And so my canvas becomes yesterday's work. And it really helps me kind of lay things out. In some cases, I've done two or three days in advance of kind of just putting something in a corner and thinking, you know what, I'm going to have to save the space because I think this would be really good for, you know, chef or something in the future. I I think the strategies worked well so far. I still have to draw with pencil on the paper, so that does take some rework, but in all honesty, I'm not really spending as much time as so many others are with Inktober, and so all in all, it's probably about an hour's worth of work with pencil and ink, and I know I could be spending so much more and making this polished, but I just don't have kind of the bandwidth right now with everything that's going on, but I feel like this has been really productive for me, and I hope that you are finding the same. I think the biggest challenge I've had with 
the paper and the approach, because I'm actually using ink and pencil and this large piece of paper, is I've not drawn on a piece of paper this large on my kind of drafting table that I have. So it is tough kind of drawing up in the corners or spinning things around because I usually have it on a pad that I can turn and hit at different angles. That I find is a little bit frustrating and I think some of my drawing kind of reflect that. So, you know, it is it is what it is. I think that this has been a good exercise. I'm probably not going to be doing another two foot by three foot ink piece uh, for a while. But uh, I really thought this was a great challenge. I think this is well beyond my um, my comfort zone. But now it has me thinking I should I should take maybe one of my ideas for a novel and consider doing something as a matter of a little, you know, maybe a a story, an illustrated story. I'm not going to say like a like a graphic novel or a kids book, but I really feel like I can combine some of the illustrations I've been doing with a solid storyline that I think people may find interesting. So don't be surprised if something comes out of this in the future where we can look back and say this is when it started. So this may be that point. So the other thing I did receive this week was I got the pen and ink workbook, and this is by Alfonso Dunn. I had his original book for quite some time, and I finally got the workbook. I think if you're exploring ink and you're struggling with it or you're trying to play with ink a little bit more, it's a really great workbook. Uh, It's designed so that you can actually work within it, obviously, hence the name. (laughs) But uh, I think that his his two books are really a good companion to doing this kind of work. And uh, I think the workbook is a is worthy investment if you're going to be moving down this uh, down this journey. So I think that's all I'm going to cover for updates this week. I'll have more. I'm going to do kind of an overall uh, review of Inktober probably in the next episode. Uh, but for now, I'll leave it like that. You can follow me on Instagram and see my progress as I move along. I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to do the final piece and get pictures and post it in a way that Instagram likes it. So uh, I don't know how I'm going to do that yet, but I'll figure something out. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy this interview. It was a wonderful conversation. We explored areas I hadn't anticipated, and I think you're really going to find this motivating. So if you do listen to this when you draw or paint, get your tools together, and uh, let's journey into this wonderful interview. My guest this week appeared on my radar about a year ago when I was exploring Instagram for inspiration. Her pieces immediately pulled me in and triggered a new appreciation for the human form. Her incredible artwork had me devoting 10 to 15 minutes on each, trying to understand her approach but ultimately getting lost in their story, as well as the soft edges and wonderful play of color and light. She is trained as a classical realist painter and has taught a number of fine art schools around the world. To talk about her creative journey and her art, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Cornelia Hennis. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. I've been really uh, looking forward to this. To be honest, I was I was so happy that you accepted my uh, invitation to, to come onto the podcast. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me, uh, Mike. Um, I'm very happy to be on your podcast. Looking forward to talking with you. This should be fun. I think that... And in the intro, I was talking about uh, looking at your work, and, and I'm not coming to this from any kind of formal fine art training. But what it, what struck me most, I think, and we can get into this later, and maybe you'd explain what I'm, what I'm actually describing. But what I find is, you know, there's some artwork that you look at, and you can see that, that moment in time, the, 
the artist is capturing, right? It's very clear that this is a moment. It may be down to the millisecond. And what I found about your artwork is that I get, it's almost like you've been able to stretch time so that when I look at your piece, it seems to reflect 10, 20, 60 minutes. Like it seems to expand time such that I can see that there's an action before, there's an action after, even though I'm just looking at a single point in time. And I don't know how else to describe that, but you know, you've got this ability with, I mean, it's the composition, it's the hands, but I feel like I'm looking at almost a video. Like it, it feels to me like there is a, there is, there's more to it than what I'm looking at. There's, there's something off to the sides that's part of this image. And I, I don't know what that is, but the way you capture it is something that I, I, I'd like to be able to do at some point, but I, I, I don't know if you've ever had that comment before, or if that means anything. I have not heard that comment before, but I really appreciate that. I think that's really fascinating. And uh, there are so many ways that one can interact with artwork, and uh, it can be very personal also in terms of how one are engaging with, uh, with an artwork. So maybe that is also a reflection of who you are in a way and what you're able to, to bring out from the experience of observing uh, some of my portraits or, or paintings. Yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's true. Maybe I'm uh, <laughs> reflecting on myself <laughs> more than your artwork. But I think, I mean, that's what it's all about, right? It's our interaction with, with either our art or, or the art that we observe from others that makes us kind of explore who we are, right? Yes, exactly. But there are some aspects in, um, in a painting, let's say, uh, that I do think it encapsulates time uh, by, for example, the use of texture. So in oil paint, we have the element of the drawing, of course, so gesture, proportion, shadow shape, light shape, the relationships between forms. And then we have the element of color and value, but we also have the element of texture. And I like to consider the medium of oil paint a bit like a sculptural medium also. Or if one let it, one can you know, engage with the sculptural element of uh, oil paint. And that means that there may be some areas of a painting that have a little bit more texture, and maybe there is another zone that is a bit more refined, where the texture is more concealed, perhaps. So there is an, a sense of um, different energy of different brushstrokes, or different kinds of brushstrokes, or different kinds of texture. So maybe that sense of time is also encapsulated into... Um, you know, whether it, it seems that something has been painted quickly or loosely or rendered very tightly. Yeah, and I've said it before, I think that, you know, we, we tend to judge so many paintings by the last 10 minutes the artist spent on it, right? Um, when we don't see all that stuff before it. And I think what you've been able to do is lead me into almost a bit of a story that I can, I can you know, if I see someone sitting, I can see that, you know, five minutes ago they were standing up and there was that movement. And I can see, it, it almost feels that there's a movement that's going to follow. And that ability to, to widen time from a single point to over a much longer span. And I, I think your, your, your work with hands and having hands in certain positions just leads you to to expanding that story in your head. And maybe that's my interpretation. Maybe that's what we're speaking to more so is, is you start to build a story about how did they get there? What are they doing? You know, it's, I, I think it's wonderful. So thank you so much. <laughs> I, I really appreciate that so much. And I do think a lot about kind of the similar questions when I am painting, like even if, uh, you know, the composition is set out, whether I'm painting from life or from photographic reference, I do 
whatever is the case, I do engage with, with those questions as well. And I love painting portraits because I love to engage with the sort of psychology of us as humans. But also, you know, that person that I'm painting at that moment, like what is she or he thinking or feeling? And, and that's always been an aspect of drawing that since childhood I, I've loved to engage with. So let's, let's touch on that. If we look at when you started drawing, I mean, all kids draw and paint t- to some level. At what point in your life do you remember thinking, this is all I want to do? Yes. So I did have, or I do have a couple of sort of moments from childhood uh, that are, are quite clear to me, like this is the moment, or th- at this moment, I thought that I, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And, uh, and such a moment was in the third grade, where my class at the time, we made a school newspaper. And so we had like the journalist <laughs> of the class that was writing the essays or interviewing the other classmates. But my task was to draw a portrait. I had uh, 10 classmates uh, at the time, and I drew a portrait of each of them. And so I was, yeah, I remember clearly really enjoying that that aspect and studying the sort of specific qualities of each face. And of course, in third grade, you are uh, nine years old, <laughs> something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so that, was, that was the first time that that became a, uh, a clear goal uh, in my mind. And then, of course, getting older, uh, I digressed into some other ideas before I looped back again into the path of art. Right. Yeah, I think... Uh... For many of us, it's those teenage years that throws us for a little bit of a loop. And uh, yeah, yes. And were yeah. your was your family supportive in your artistic kind of journey? So my parents have always been supportive uh, of my uh, sort of, uh, artistic interests and pursuits. So, so from childhood, so whenever they could supply me with uh, art materials and books. Uh, they would do so. And I also remember going to this uh, Goya exhibition in uh, Oslo. Uh, I, I don't know how old I was, but it was a it was an encouragement uh, from my parents. They were a bit skeptical when I decided to pursue it as a career. So that made, especially my father, especially concerned. <laughs> because I changed my major from psychology to art. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> So that's basically, you know, moving direction from a, a very safe sort of income uh, and profession to much more of a gamble. Uh, but even if uh, they disagree with that decision, they still supported me in that endeavor. You know, as a parent, I, you know, I say on the show that we need to pursue our dreams. And if art is that, that we have to do that. And uh, but but as a parent, if if my daughters were to move from one something into art, I probably would still have that that pause of, are you sure? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even in this day and age, with the, with the possibilities, it, the, yeah. But that that's great that they um, continue to support that, and I, I think being honest with you about their challenges maybe in accepting art versus psychology. But yeah, <laughs> when you moved into art. Like, so you started out really in portraiture, right? And if you talk about grade three and, and drawing people, mm. did that stick with you? Or were, what was your inspiration as you got older and then, you know, into high school, university? Was it always people that you were interested in capturing? Or did you, what mm. was what was it that, that stirred you that you had to get down on paper? 
Right. So it was uh, largely people. And in, in childhood, through drawings, there was a lot of, you know, princesses <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, and a lot of storytelling, too. I remember uh, that I would create a narrative in my own mind as I was making a drawing. And maybe it wasn't like a, a cartoon, so you wouldn't see that there was a story there. But it was more like just a reflection of... Uh, the, the people that I was drawing, maybe. So I had my own kind of storytelling within me, even if it wasn't sort of on the, uh, within the paper. But since, since childhood, I always had a gravity towards drawing people and sort of the figure. And that carried with me into university as well. So probably in my mid-teens, I didn't paint or draw for some time and then I got back into to painting when I was about 16 I remember and 17 18 I took a um, higher level uh, art class uh, at uh, high school and my focus again was on on uh, portraiture and the figure and I, and I think it's it ties in with my interest in psychology as well that has always with been with me now when I studied at the France Academy of Art, as a part of the curriculum, we had to work with still lifes as well. And I didn't really have an interest for still life until I had to do it. And then I absolutely fell in love with it. <laughs> so, so still lifes is, uh, is a genre that is absolutely dear to my heart as well. But that was something that I, I had to discover. Whereas uh, my um, appreciation for portraiture and the figure and kind of the reflections of the human condition or the portrayal of psychology, emotion, or even narrative or mythological uh, artwork that's always been uh, kind of my primary focal point or point of interest. Yeah, I, I mean, I looked at your still life. It's, it's wonderful. And it was, you know, what really struck me when I looked through it is some of your still life, I, I guess if you're drawing a wedding gown, that's considered still life but it feels like once again is that before a wedding is that after a wedding like it it, yeah. it feels like portraiture like that there's a story there and it's like it's did it did it get left behind um did something happen where something bad happened where the the, the dress was never used or it's it's i i hadn't seen that drawn before and immediately it was so captivating and i mean it's it's just I'll provide links to to your artwork and, and to that piece, but I, I'm so glad you explored that because I, I've never seen something like that that just pulled me in and made me think. Huh, I wonder, <laughs> wonder what's behind this thing, you know? Because you look at you know still life where you see a water pot and 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 oranges and that, and I don't. Uh, they're wonderful when people do still life like that, but I don't feel like it's part of a story, right? Mm-hmm. When I saw the, the dress, it was like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And it brought me right back to my, you know, childhood uh, girly self, uh, just <laughs> loving painting princesses and drawing princesses. <laughs> and and I really enjoyed that project. That was a commission, actually. Oh, was it? Um, yes. And so I made several uh, studies from the same pink ball gown and then eventually uh, decided on um, that version when it's hanging on the wall and that became a, a bigger um, a version of that composition. Okay. So and, it's a ball uh, gown. Yeah. I, I got it wrong. It's not a wedding dress. It's a ball gown. Well, it, it can be both. <laughs> okay. A pink wedding dress or a ball gown. Yeah. <laughs> 
So in, in doing the still life and exploring that, is there things that, that you got exposed to or that you learned from that? Can you talk a little bit more about that? So I recall the first still life assignment that I had to do, has to had to fulfill sort of certain academic requirements. For instance, it had to be you know roughly three objects on a you know dark background, for example. Okay. And I I remember uh, at that time that I needed to find a way to connect with with this as a genre, and realize that it's not necessarily about the objects, but what the objects represent. And so through kind of connecting with these different objects and really using still lives as a way to compose a story or a narrative or in a way an emotion too, because we can have different associations to, for example, water or to lavender or to lemons or to flowers, etc. So I find that still lives as a genre has the potential of being this sort of deeply sort of sensory experience as, as well as, uh, as uh, evoking sort of emotional sort of uh, associations. For me, uh, still lives is often a place to create a sense of calm and maybe re- reflect on little moments in life that we can be surrounded with. So I'd like it to capture some element of one's life and a sort of a celebration of that. I also think that still lives can can have this uh, ability to to contain a, a narrative. Uh, the moment you include something like flowers that uh, will go through a uh, you know, life and, and death cycle, you know, as one are painting them, you know, you're capturing the flowers, you know, in a moment, you know, in their duration, and that I think is also uh, a, a powerful opportunity to really connect with nature and to internalize also the shapes of of the flowers etc but also in that they in they by being included in the still lives will naturally speak of a moment in their life cycle so time will sort of exist when there is something that is organic at least something that is fleeting right is uh, included and that's a wonderful way to look at it you know this is formal art training at work. (laughs) And I think you probably spent countless, endless hours thinking about still life and and orchestrating this into a way that that works for you in interpretation, but it is also consistent with what they were expecting as a matter of the class. Mm. So this is a personal thing. We've lost some wonderful music artists this year, John Prine, Eddie Van Halen, and numerous others, right? And it's almost a soundtrack of your life. You can listen to that song and be pulled back into 18 years old at this event, whatever the case. And I was I was thinking about that when I was looking at some of your art, and I've thought about this in the past as well, is when you're an artist and you're producing this much work, artwork, do you look at your art and and does it pull you back to that point in time? Or do you look at it as an engineered piece where you think about, oh, that took me so long. I had to do that area five times. And I'm sure that's part of it. But does it invoke kind of the smells and the feelings you had at that point in your life? Um, Because I I think part of what I'm trying to understand as an amateur artist is understanding the relationship between the artist and the artwork. And at that point in time when you're doing it, but in 10, 15, 20 years, how do you look back at your artwork? Because I get the sense from some artists, they look back and think, 
oh, that took me so much time that, you know, that piece was 60 hours and I, I had to modify my palette three or four times because it wasn't produced. But I'm wondering, can you look, talk about looking back on your artwork and, and what that invokes for you? Uh, I think that there's a number of, of uh, associations that come back. And on the one hand, it is absolutely a, uh, a record of one's life, of course, because one painted something, one painted a composition, a theme that one was interested in at a given time. The colors that one were inspired by at that particular time is manifested in that piece. The knowledge that one had are manifested in that piece. The elements that one don't know <laughs> or not fully understood are manifested in that piece. So it becomes a record of what one felt, what one thought about, what one was inspired by, and a combination of what one knew and didn't know. You know all of that is definitely in, in that piece. So I can, I can absolutely relate to that and, and look back at my previous artwork and, and be reminded of uh, that particular moment in time and where I lived and uh, what I did. If I was a student or a professional artist at that point, that is all sort of summarized in, in the piece as well. And for me, I do find that it... Uh, the compositions and the themes have changed slightly depending on where I have lived, what I have focused on. So it does encapsulate sort of all of that. Now, there's also something else that is interesting, I think, when one look back at one's work, is that one had a sense of distance to it. So while it is deeply personal, one can also experience it somewhat objectively. So you can kind of be an outsider looking in at your own life <laughs> or at your own uh, artwork in a way. And I think that's always uh, interesting to do because then one can uh, have the, uh, maybe the associations or the struggles that one had like during the process of making the artwork, you know, that has been quieted down and is more in the periphery. And so one can experience the painting or the artwork just on its own merits a little bit more as well. So it's both, you know, it's both that deeply subjective experience, but it can also be a very objective experience. And it can be, um, yeah, just a really nice way of experiencing one's own work. Very often it happens that one, you know, thinks that one thought was wrong or off when one was working with a piece, has, kind of fades back and maybe it's not so bad or maybe there are other elements that one didn't really think about, you know, it starts to grab a little bit more attention. Do you ever get inspired by a piece you did? 20 years ago? In a, yeah, sometimes. They can be a bit of a reminder. So 10 years ago, yes. Uh, 20 years ago, no. <laughs> um, I was painting at the time. and But, you know, it's a little bit more naive, you know, being a young adult, uh, finding one's identity and so on. And, you know, one can maybe uh, see oneself and appreciate, uh, you know, who one were, you know, almost in an objective sense as well. So if we go back in time then to that point, like is, when did you feel you made that transition from being naive and not having your way, not having found your way artistically to, to being, you know, this is the point in time you're, you said you're 41 now. Can you look back and say, when was that, that you feel you made that transition and then how does that map on top of your training that's i think is quite parallel 
so going to the Florence Academy of Art was an, a, a major step for me because I felt strongly that I needed to acquire a sort of toolkit of drawing and painting that I didn't have. So I, um, I have a, a Bachelor of Fine Art degree from University of Victoria in British Columbia. <laughs> Yay, Canada. In Canada, yes, <laughs> uh, which is great. I love living in Canada. And uh, having this degree, I think, was, was, uh, was good also. Uh, however, it was a very conceptual art training. And uh, when I went to university, as briefly mentioned, production, I initially studied psychology and then I changed my major to uh, fine art. And I was very uh, naive in that transition because I, I just took for granted that I would be learning about anatomy and the technique of drawing and painting. Uh, and I, did, I hadn't done my groundwork well. Uh, so it was a very conceptual art uh, education. And uh, I think on one hand, it's, it's interesting to, uh, to have had some introduction to kind of the, the rhetoric of that. And I do appreciate having had art history and sort of other, uh, other classes, uh, like, for example, how to write well. I, I do think that they are, you know, it wasn't a waste of time, but just in terms of uh, acquiring knowledge that I lacked uh, so that I could express myself visually. Uh, it was a, a very, uh, it was a paradigm shift uh, to be able to do so after having gone to an art school that could actually train the techniques of uh, drawing and painting. And that's something that I was always interested in and that I, I needed to pursue. I didn't know how to acquire it until I eventually found out about the Florence Academy of Art. And you went to Italy for that? I did, okay. yes. And how long was that? So that was, uh, I was there for uh, four years and then I began uh, teaching as a teacher assistant as I was a student there okay. and then I continued to teach after graduation and and then I taught there until recently. So I graduated in 2007 and uh, taught now until 2016, no, 2020. <laughs> it's interesting because it's, you know, I've always wondered about what it is in a current fine arts degree that is is a benefit and and what isn't and i'm often hearing this story which i think is reflected across other programs as well where you're going to university to learn how to learn not learning how to do necessarily and i think that's true for so many programs um you know and that's you know especially in canada that differentiates kind of university from a college degree is uh, the college degree is more applied. Uh, you know, even if you look at something like engineering, it's more applied versus university, which is, once again, you're being taught how to learn, uh, not necessarily taught how to do. So do you think that's still the way it is now uh, with regard to art, where do you think people need a fine arts degree? You know, is your journey something you would recommend others taking? Mm, those are two, I think, very good questions hmm. if you whether you need a fine arts degree I think that I could have done exactly well maybe not exactly but I could have ended up roughly where I ended up without a, a fine arts degree so I it was a little bit of a whiny uh, road to get uh, where I felt I needed to get to but with that comes so many life experiences as well and um, and that also becomes a part of of who one become Right. So 
uh, you know, there isn't anything that could be undone. The only thing I would maybe, like if I could um, go back in time and give myself advice. <laughs> That's a question I would have later, so let's answer <laughs> oh, <yeah>. it now. <laughs> then I would maybe say, don't spend that much money on a art degree. <laughs> Uh, that you're not going to really use, but you know that's always the the element of of hindsight. But you know there's also just the experience of living and figuring out you know who one are as a young person. You know one have to live and explore, and it, it maybe doesn't have to be on the other side of the world uh, with a you know student loans. <laughs> right. But that's sort of the journey that it took, and uh, and I'm grateful for that too. So you started teaching at the end of that. How did you like teaching? I really enjoy teaching. It is uh, challenging because one has to, of course, relate to uh, as much as possible to another person and see where they're coming from visually. One has to be able to decipher to some extent what they what they understand and maybe what they need to work on more, you know, just based on what's on the paper or the canvas. But uh, I, I would consider myself a, a social introvert. I enjoy being on my own. I always have. But I also enjoy uh, communicating with people, of course, and having, having close friendships. I, I prefer sort of smaller groups and kind of communicating in smaller groups. So teaching one-to-one, you know, giving personal feedback to a student, uh, I think has always been very engaging. I really appreciate that uh, experience. Did you find that your artwork changed at all when you started teaching more aggressively? Did you find that your personal expression changed because you had to vocalize what you were doing? I think that's also so so interesting to think about and impossible to answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's okay. That's, that's a tough one. It's great. I... It's difficult to answer, or it's impossible to answer, because one would have to clone oneself and then have one do one thing and the other do one thing, right? So uh, because I haven't, uh, and I went straight from uh, graduating to teaching and to working on my own work, and I think maybe there is a, a strong sense of, sort of academic qualities in my paintings, uh, and that is probably tied into teaching also. Um, so I'm, there's bound to be an influence there from the uh, from the environment, but I also find that I I haven't shied away from experimenting and exploring, and I haven't really felt that I had to adhere to the requirements of the academic institution, even if I uh, was a representative, you know, through being an instructor. So yes, so that's I guess that's the equation a little bit. So. Well, I think that maybe reflects on the quality of that program and maybe the quality of your teaching, because I think, you know, I've taught numerous things in the past, not art. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I taught art to uh, elementary kids, <laughs> school kids. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my first thought would be if you're, if you're taught a series of steps or process and you're given a certain number of tools to do that, that you're not going to deviate much from that because you're carrying on that, um, what you've learned in a way that's easily executable. But the fact that you were able to explore and not do it this way and try something different maybe is is a reflection of that solid foundation that you had on which you could experiment. And I think that's I think that's the balance 
as artists is understanding that, and I've I've struggled with this a little bit is is understanding that it's okay to experiment and it's okay to simplify your work and work on things that are that maybe are slightly more abstract or explore other things. I'm exploring some stuff right now, which kind of freaks me out a little bit. <laughs> but you do need a bit of a foundation to work from because you have to understand what's right and what's wrong. And yeah. I think that maybe it's a reflection of the way you teach. And and we're going to get to later, we'll talk about Patreon and an opportunity for people to interact with you, which is just wonderful. It, it's great that you were able to do that, I guess, is my point, is is that you still had that opportunity to grow and expand and play and try, and yeah. you still felt motivated to do so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is also one of the elements that are so fascinating about uh, just drawing and painting in general. There is this uh, endless well of... Um, exploration. Now, I think when when teaching and when, when being a student, probably in any genre, really, whether it is uh, drawing, painting, or even music, it's uh, easy to become dogmatic, but it's important to be really thinking about the craftsmanship as, as a pragmatic exercise. So that it's not about, you know, having to learn how to make still lives with garlic <laughs> and the dark background. Like it's, that's, that's a very dogmatic view. Mm-hmm. But we, if we can say that there is a, um, you know, that, uh, that the academic approach to learning is very pragmatic. And if a student feel that this is the end goal, then that becomes a very kind of dogmatic interpretation of something that is... Uh, that's supposed to be very pragmatic. It's this is we are not or in a academic setting. The point is not to teach people how to paint still lives with garlic necessarily. It's just that it's a very practical uh, step or approach to acquire a toolkit that one can then use to express what one really want to express. Right. So I think with uh, drawing and painting and learning the skill set for that, it's it's very much like a language. So the vocabulary and the grammar, you know, the language is not about the vocabulary or the grammar itself. It's just that that is a tool that we have to use in order to communicate with each other. Right. That's a good way to look at it. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Are you doing most of your work in oil? Yes. So currently I, uh, I focus a lot on portrait painting. Okay. And then I also love drawing. So drawing in graphite as well as in charcoal. I mostly uh, uh, paint in oil right now. Okay. If you have spare time, if you just want to sit down and create, is it oil or graphite that you go to? Or is it alternate? If I need to just uh, sort of doodle up some ideas, for example, then I think it would be uh, graphite a little bit more. So it depends a little bit on the time frame, right. too. <laughs> <laughs> Because oil does require a little bit of, you know, kind of warming up. It's a little bit like a cold train. <laughs> you just need to kind of uh, warm up the engine. Um, so, yeah, because it just requires a little bit more preparation mm-hmm. with uh, color mixing, for example, and also cleaning up after. So I tend not to uh, get into painting unless I know that I have at least three hours to, to focus on that. Okay. So if I'm just uh, sort of relaxing with um, with doodling or I need to sketch out some ideas and my medium of preference is drawing. So I guess to take that a bit further, you, you need both in your life. Like if you were unable to draw for a month, that would probably bother you as much as not being able to paint. 
Um, so, so like, it's a balance for you still, right? Would I be correct in saying that? Uh, yeah. Although I would say that the the kind of majority of my time is dedicated to painting, right. and I also really just love uh, working with uh, the range of colors that uh, paint uh, permit. Yeah, I have to say, and and I'll post a link directly to it. But the Instagram post you just did when you asked people to determine what was the difference between the two pieces you had painted, I thought was wonderful. Uh, not just that you would ask such a question, because my immediate thought was, I can figure this out. <laughs> it ends up, I wasn't close. But no, to see the response... I'd love to hear it. <laughs> what, what was your guess? <laughs> well, I, I, my guess was what somebody else had said, and one was drawn from, or one was painted from a reference, and the other one was painted from the painting. Um, sorry, one was drawn from real life, and the other one was drawn from the painting, or... or produced from the painting so kind of a a child of the parent <laughs> yes <laughs> and yeah. um i i could see differences subtle differences in shadow and light but i couldn't say that it was different because of this because i kept feeling that oh the you know the shadow on the chin's a little bit different but i'm not sure why that is i like just didn't have enough knowledge and you could can you maybe talk to that a little bit? Because I thought that was such a fun exercise. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I felt like if I was in a group of 50 people, I would be at the back of the room just being quiet and waiting what people say, because there's no way <laughs> I would put my hand up for this one. So yeah. can maybe talk about, you know. If, I can give you the answer if you'd like. I did see the answer, but I, I yeah. if you can if you can explain it to me in a way that okay. my listeners would understand kind of where you're coming from with it. I thought it was a really interesting exercise. And yeah. Maybe you can talk to it a bit. Absolutely. So the exercise is about which palette to use. Now, one of these portraits were painted with a limited uh, palette or a earth palette, mm -hmm. just consisting of ivory black uh, cadmium, no, ivory black uh, uh, Venetian red and uh, yellow ochre and white. And the photograph or the, the version of the painting to the right was painted with a limited chromatic palette consisting of black, white, cobalt blue, cadmium red and cadmium yellow. So that's really the difference. It's that one is an earth palette and the second is a uh, primary color palette. Okay. And, and I wanted to do this, uh, this painting or this project and it's actually a tutorial on my Patreon page. Uh, just to show that there isn't one true palette. Because I do think that when people get into oil painting, it can be easy to get overwhelmed by all the choices or all the you know, contradictory advice that people are given, etc. Right. And when it comes to the palette, I think it is important to approach it in a very simplified way, at least when starting out, so that one are very you know, limited with the colors that one one include on the palette to learn how the colors function in a way. And one of the essential kind of concepts with the earth palette is that one have to preserve the color saturation because the moment one start to smush all of those colors together, it quickly becomes very gray. So one have to learn to kind of preserve the color saturation because one don't have the full range. Whereas on a uh, chromatic palette where you have more of a cadmium blue, cadmium uh, or more primary blue, yellow, and red, essentially, one have to work more with neutralizing colors to cancel each other out, right? right? So that one don't have overly chromatic 
uh, flesh tints uh, when working with, uh, with a portrait. So a good metaphor here is to consider the palette a bit like an instrument. So a earth palette is kind of like a guitar maybe with four strings, <laughs> whereas the, uh, the chromatic palette is a guitar with eight strings. I don't think guitars have that. But just to say that there is much more range that one have to work with. Okay. Um, and that becomes more complex, but it also gives more uh, kind of choices in terms of color saturation. And that's why one of these uh, portraits have more of a color range, and it's also a bit cooler. Whereas uh, the earth palette uh, portrait is a bit warmer because I had to use ochre a lot, especially in the shawl, to promote the sort of illusion of color. And I couldn't bring in enough um, kind of black because it would gray it down. Right. So it's really just about how to interpret the same composition with different palettes. Yeah, I think this is where I have an education deficiency. <laughs> it's around understanding the palettes because I've not tried oil. I did years ago, and I didn't like it. It wasn't drying fast enough. I just was, you know, and, and I say years ago, it was maybe 25 years ago. And I've thought about getting back into it, but as an amateur and someone who, where this, where art is really a part-time adventure for me, yeah, my, my initial thought is, what paints do I need to buy? And I have to say, being able to see a palette makes it way easier. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even recently, people were talking about the Zorn palette. And, you know, up until three months ago, I had no idea what that was. Or maybe it was more than three months ago. But having people talk about these these palettes, like it is this combination of color is provides some definition and some feeling and some some pros and cons in putting your piece together. And I think it's wonderful you're talking about this. I haven't looked at your Patreon for that, but I'm going to, I think, because... Um, I initially was exposed to this through James Gurney and his work with watercolor and gouache. And to hear you talking about it, it feels like this is a rabbit hole I want to spend some time in, in understanding yeah. the palettes and the use of color. It's I, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I do it a lot of digital painting and I feel like it would even benefit that in understanding yeah. this. I know a lot of artists probably listening right now are like, yeah, I think you need to work on that. <laughs> But I, I just found that little test that you did so much fun. And, That's uh, great. I appreciate that. And Thank you. To not have the answer made it even better for me because I learned something from it. But to see everyone else's responses was... Uh, that was really great. I, I really appreciate everybody taking a moment to reflect on that and, and give their guess. And there was a couple of right, uh, right answers. Yeah. Did, <laughs> did any of the questions think that you have to do another one about something different? Is it, did any of the, uh, the guesses, I should say... Uh, give you thought that maybe I should try that one. <laughs> right. Uh, I have to go back over That's that okay. again. There was something that jumped out to me, but now I forgot it. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was great. And, um, you know, I'll provide a link to that and to your Instagram. Cause I thought that was, it, it's fun to see artists reaching out and, yeah. and uh, interacting at that level. Yeah. Versus oh, now I remember it. There was somebody who said, oh, yeah, actually, that's what you just said about uh, that one was painted from life and the other was painted from the painting. Yeah. I have a project coming up. I have a post coming up about that. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and that'll be on your Patreon or, or it'll be going uh, on? I'll post that on Instagram at some point. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that'd be fun. Upcoming qu uh, quiz. <laughs> <laughs> so you've, you've done a lot of portraiture. You've done landscapes as well. Not that much. Not that much, but you've done some. Bit. Um, yeah. Do you still feel that that's where you're at is around portraiture? Do you feel compelled to anything else at this point? Or is, is that, is your heart still with that? 
um, my heart is very much still in love with the genre of portraiture uh, as well as still lives, although I haven't been uh, focusing on still lives as much uh, since in the last uh, couple of years I've been focusing on making uh, portrait painting video tutorials. And it tur turns out that uh, video editing takes up a lot of time. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's sort of uh, an equation of the pie chart of time. But, uh, you know, I, I keep thinking of it. I keep surrounding myself with little sort of still life moments in my studio and home to keep it sort of you know, being inspired by, by that genre, even if I'm not painting one right now. But it also happens that uh, I know as you are working with a, a painting or a genre that it sort of opens up it, it sort of domino effects into other ideas so you know I still have this sort of lineup of portraits that I want to do before I kind of come back into still lives but it's at the back of my mind and I'm going to come back to it but now that we have also moved from sort of the big city uh, lifestyle of New York into Norwegian kind of landscape, I, I do feel really inspired by going into uh, landscape genre as well. But I, I will say that it's not the genre that I feel, uh, I'm not an expertise on it at all. I will use, you know, my experience from, from portraiture and still lives and apply it in the context of landscape. But it's a very sort of new genre for me. Uh, which I think is uh, exciting too, because I can kind of maybe use it a little bit as a hobby painting genre. <laughs> <laughs> and I like that idea. <laughs> so I, I want to ask you about composition as well, because I, I find that's something, it's almost like black magic a little bit. Uh, you know, the rule of thirds and, and all of that can be observed and we can try and place things where we hope to place them. But what do you say to artists who are struggling with composition? Right. I'd like to use maybe still lives as a great genre to study composition because in still life one has several moving parts. So if you have, let's say, three objects, how are you going to arrange them to create a dynamic harmony? And that's ultimately our goal uh, in a good composition. What makes a good composition? Well, it is interesting to look at, it's stimulating to look at. Uh, it uh, permits the attention and your gaze to kind of travel within the pictorial composition. So uh, if you have, for example, three objects, I think a great rule of thumb is to have two of them overlapping to create one mass and to have one freestanding to create a negative shape. Interesting. So as we are composing, we are not we, we shouldn't just be looking at the objects themselves, but really how they interact with each other and the shapes that they create together. Excuse me. And that includes the negative shapes surrounding them. So a good guide when for example composing a still life composition is to avoid objects that repeat uh, a little bit too much. If they repeat in scale and in shape and in material it becomes a little bit uh, monotone. Whereas if one have a variation of uh, size and uh, shapes and maybe you know one is porcelain, the other is glass, metal or whatnot, that also creates sort of dynamic sort of textural variations that become interesting. So I think looking at still lives and searching for, for example, how the relationship of mass, you know, something that is dark versus light, how that relates to each other, and also looking at the rhythmic 
melodies uh, sort of traveling through the still life, like for example, by following the contour of a vase and then that contour may merge into another object that is placed in front of that vase and that kind of creates an interesting design, etc. I think that's interesting you mentioned melodies because this is exactly what this podcast is about, is trying to understand the brain of artists and to have you uh, describe it so eloquently to, to, to say that it's a melody that you're following through an image. I think it helps me to understand how to look at it and how to conceive it. And I'm not a music person, but be, being able to, to say that, you know, there's lines that you need to follow and, and that's how you travel through an image. I think it's just interesting. Like, do you, do you play music? Do you listen to music as well? I love music. Music is very, very dear to my heart. And I have a, a very strong association between music and visual forms. I don't play music. I wish I did. But for me, it was always the sort of visual language that drew me in. But I am, yeah, avid music appreciator. And I appreciate all genres of music, although I'm very picky also. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a, absolutely a parallel there that must be expressed. I like to say it like this, that uh, visual language or you know, visual language of art, paintings, and music they are dealing with the same elements, but they are different mediums. So when we compose or when we listen to a composition in music or when we listen to a piece of music, the elements that are often in music is the rhythm, it's the melody, there's also texture in music, there's also perspective where one have uh, maybe one uh, kind of leading instrument and then the other elements are behind Sometimes there's a switch in place, you know, where the instruments switch places and become the focal point of the composition as well. Um, So there is so much that you can take from music and apply to the visual language. Absolutely. Can I ask you a silly question then? Yeah. (laughs) When you look at some of your artwork, could you attribute a certain song to that piece of artwork and say, I feel like this song is reminiscent of this and this over here reminds me of something completely different in a different genre altogether. Do you feel that you could attribute your artwork to a song? Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. It's a weird question, I know. No, it's not silly at all. Actually, uh, my husband, uh, Stephen Bauman, has uh, specific titles, Ghost on the Highway, David Bowie. Okay. Not Bowie, but Bowie. (laughs) (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) That was from... uh, Oh, yeah, anyway, <laughs> the question there. Uh, yes, so so that's definitely uh, possible to do, to kind of have the association of a particular piece and then, for example, title one's artwork with it. I don't do that uh, exactly, but I'll have maybe paintings where I feel that they, they have a, a specific energy, maybe it's very calm, and um, I will maybe associate uh, specific sort of genres uh, to the experience uh, of observing that artwork as well. And then it's also true that I will listen to maybe a specific genre of music over and over again as I am working with a portrait, for example, and imagine that there's a little bit of channeling of uh, energy and emotion, you know, as I observe or absorb the emotion of the music and reflect on that and and kind of intuit that part of that can get kind of trickled into uh, the rendering of a portrait as well, for instance. Right. So there's a strong connection there. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that as a matter of rituals. And because I, I've struggled 
I, I struggled with that for a while, and then I figured out the kind of music I like to listen to when I draw, which is completely different than the music I listen to when I write, because I'm working on a couple of novels, and so I like to listen to really kind of ambiance, you know, uh, and it's weird stuff. It's, you know, it's listening to Star Trek Voyager, the warp engines kind of hum in the background. Like I, when I write, I can't have words coming at my ears, right? I understand. Um, yeah. But so back to the question about ritual. So you do listen to certain, you intentionally surround yourself with a certain kind of music. Is there other, are there other rituals that you do uh, going for walks or time of day? Is there anything else that you do that help you prepare yourself for your activity of either painting or drawing? Uh, right. I think that there are a few, and it depends a little bit on the task at hand. So if uh, I'm starting a, a new project, and I know it's going to require a bit of time to you know, get into that project, or I'm going to spend some time with it, I, I often like to have a clean studio when I'm starting a major project. And then maybe it gets a little bit chaotic and kind of cluttered during that process, but then I like to kind of tidy it up again before starting a new project. So kind of organizing the space to kind of organize my mind so I don't have any sort of distractions sort of in the environment. Okay. Once you get into it, are you constantly keeping your place organized or do you kind of leave it set and you come back to it the next day? And well, just... I think it's organized, but I think uh, my husband with the <laughs> different opinions <laughs> sometimes. Um, I'm very particular about uh, washing my brushes, though, because I, I, I really do, uh, I do, I think, take care of my painting brushes. I care about them a lot. It's the tool that touches the canvas, right? So everything else is, uh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And when you find those brushes that do exactly the thing that you want them to do, that there's a very special connection and bond <laughs> that is created. And uh, I want to just prolong that as much as possible by being kind to, to the brushes and not uh, wear them out. I haven't, obviously, I haven't done oil, but um, I've done a lot of work with graphite in that. And I found that when I find like the right pen, or sorry, when I find the right pencil, I have, you know, I found the right ink that I'm using for Inktober. Um, I always go and buy like two or three because it's like, yeah. and I don't know if you do this with brushes where you find something that works and it's like, I better buy a few because yeah. it's the worst thing to go and, and realize that the company is has shut down or it's just not available anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Or you move to a different continent. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, the stores are different. Yeah. Yes. You don't have to expend that creative energy in finding a new tool. I mean, I, Einstein famously uh, had one color suit, right? Yeah, eight of them. Yes, and that was it. And no, and yeah. so I feel like uh, you know I tr I try to apply that to my life. It doesn't always go well, but <laughs> I like to think uh, that way at least. So, is there a type of paint that you prefer as well? That's you're thinking about brand now. I don't know. Are you comfortable saying a brand? Yeah, sure. So I do think that there's this overall maybe hang up of uh, brands. I mean, I, I get this question, of course, a lot. Mm -hmm. And I, I'd like to say it like this, that there are some maybe student-made uh, uh, sort of quality oil paints, like, for example, Winton. I wouldn't recommend, just because it's, it, um, it doesn't contain all that much, uh, it doesn't contain that much pigment, which ultimately is what oil paint is. So oil paint is a combination of pigment and a oil. Typically linseed oil, but it can also be walnut oil. And that's what I would recommend getting. So my recommendation when a student is going out there to buy colors is to look for a 
average to good quality brand, such as uh, Michael Harding, Old Holland, Williamsburg, Ruble of Color, um, for example. And there are many more, but those are the ones that I just know and uh, I have experienced. And then uh, really look at the, um, uh, the, the kind of contents on the tube of the paint as well. So what you want to be looking at is that the pigment number and not necessarily the name of the color, because you could have like raw umber by Winton, for example, that doesn't contain raw umber. It's a concoction of different colors that create a raw umber-like color, <laughs> right. uh, which is different than raw umber if you get it from a, a better brand in a way, yeah, better quality where you actually get the, the pigment itself. Well, that's helpful. I, I'm really asking for myself because I think I'm going to have to try oils at some point. So my next question for you would be, if someone was trying oils, because all of yes. this is, there's an expense to it, right? And you want to make sure you get it right. And as artists, you know, sometimes you blame the tools you have because the piece didn't go right, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's true. Most times it's not. <laughs> but I'm wondering, as a matter of brushes, what's the, you know, if you were looking to get into oils, the person listening to us right now is thinking, I want to try this out. Can you recommend kind of not even necessarily a brand, but what would be a good combination of brushes, you know, two, three, four brushes that they would try that would help them to get into it? That's a, that's a great question. I personally prefer a mixture of different uh, brushes. So I have some hog hair bristle brushes and hog hair is quite stiff, which is great if you're going to scumble or like rub the paint across the canvas or when you are applying more paint. And one of the uh, benefits of that is that when you're just starting to, uh, to work with a dry canvas, it can be a bit cumbersome to spread the paint. And if when I'm working with synthetic brushes or brushes that are too soft, the temptation will be to want to dilute the paint so it's easier to spread it. And that can often create just too much dilution with the paint, which I would generally want to avoid anyway. So I think get a bundle of hog hair bristle brushes that are fair, fairly large, you know, like a size of your thumb, maybe a little bit larger and a little bit smaller, so that you can cover larger areas more effectively. So you can be a little bit more economic in, in the painting approach. And this is, I think, especially important when you're just starting to, to block something in. It's also essential to get some smaller brushes that can really uh, enable you to uh, look at the intricacy of the drawing. So if you need to work with a very careful transition around the eye or the nose or you know some key elements of the drawing, you need smaller brushes. You can't really do that with an amount of control with a big hog hair bristle brush. So you need a combination of larger brushes that are great for modeling larger areas and some smaller brushes that are great for working with a subtlety of the drawing and the transitions in intricate areas. I also like to have some sable hair brushes for that because sable hair brushes are quite soft and so they don't leave a lot of texture, brushstroke or visible brushstrokes behind, which is great if you want to have a smooth surface, which can be very advantageous in a shadow shape area or in a half tone area, for example. So often in shadow shape and dark halftone zones, I tend to favor sable hair brushes, whereas in the background and in the light and areas that are larger, I tend to favor hog hair bristle brushes. But they do overlap each other in function as well. Yeah, I'm going to have to check out your Patreon, I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to. Maybe, maybe over the winter, I'll, I'll, I'll try a little painting. I'm, I'm so tempted by it because I look at your work and I think, it's it's a bit timeless when I when I see your stuff because I think this could have been done by you know masters you know three hundred years ago like it's it I, I just think they're wonderful pieces and Thank I you. 
I, I, as I say, I keep exploring it with my eyes thinking, how did she, and I don't, and it just goes on and on. So, (laughs) so, well, the foundation is drawing and, and you have that and it's really, it's basically switching your medium. Uh, and that's a nice way to demystify it. So if you are comfortable with drawing and you're curious about oil painting, trust that you have, in a way, what is required to get into it, which is some understanding of drawing. And that has to do with shape design, knowing a little bit of just proportion. And then it's basically just switching your medium. Of course, there's a little bit more to that also. <laughs> <laughs> because we do have the element of color and it's a little bit of a larger value scale and we have the element of texture. So there is a, a few more moving parts. But again, it all kind of comes back to, to the foundation of the drawing. That's a good way to look at it. I worry that I'll make my first mistake with oil and I'll reach down and try and grab my eraser, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which won't go well. Well, oil paint, while it is kind of chaotic, it is also very forgiving right. because uh, you can cover the preceding layer, for example. And it's also great to paint wet and wet. So... I often like to activate my paintings so that I have kind of wet paint flowing everywhere. And then I really work into that. When you're working on a piece, then are you applying something to the whole painting to, or, or like, so do you spray it, it with something or how does that? <laughs> yeah. Like a baking spray. No, <laughs> I don't, don't do that. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. So in terms of the mediums and I know I recognize this or, uh, from myself when I started painting in oil, I was 17 I was very confused with all the different parts. I had a palette knife. I didn't know what, what it was for, for many years. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was something that the impressionist used to paint with, but it turns out that it's for the palette. And uh, it's, it's also great to premix a lot of the color and the values and to organize the palette well when you're working in oil. And uh, one of the benefits to it being a bit slow drying is that you can do that and it's not going to dry up typically in one painting session, whereas that would be the case uh, typically with acrylic, let's say. So if we can say that the opening time of oil is, is uh, a few hours, you know, you can, it's wet for a few hours, you can move information around kind of within that time, which makes it very flexible and actually very forgiving. So in terms of mediums, my recommendation is to keep it fairly simplified. So I tend to just use linseed oil or walnut oil as my medium, and that's it. And then I use very little of it. So what I paint with, for the most part, is paint, and that's it. And I, I'd like to say, too, that for people who, who are curious about oil or interested to get into oil, when you go to an, uh, the art supply store, you're going to get recommendations about this and that medium concoction. And it's often it's just a selling point. You know, you have paint manufacturers who create these products and they want to sell it. And I think it's it's important to know that you don't need nail glip or <laughs> or you know kind of complex medium concoctions. All you really need is a little bit of oil, and that's what oil paint is composed of anyway. It's just mm. pigment and oil, so you're not contradicting the chemistry of the paint in any way. Another thing too is that when you paint with oil, you learn how oil paint behaves. Whereas if you overly dilute the paint with you know, uh, exotic mediums, you become familiar with those mediums, not necessarily the the qualities of the oil paint. Well, that's helpful. I'm I'm feeling less intimidated now, maybe. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, just embrace it. It brings so much joy. So, of course, uh, I will absolutely recommend you to give it a a go. Now, if somebody was, like, so myself, I'm not, 
you know, I like people, but I really like animals. Um, I love nature. In your Patreon, you've got courses around all of this and access to this material, right? If if that is the angle I'm coming from, is there, you know, obviously there's still going to be lessons to be learned about application, composition, understanding the palette and all of that, right? You're not bound by the, the subject that you're drawing, correct? Uh, well, I think so. There might be room to branch out into other genres as well, but my focus has been on portrait because, of course, it is so complex in itself. And there are many ways to approach a painting as well. And I think that's also important. So that's have been my primary uh, focus on my uh, tutorials, is to uh, talk about how a, a portrait can be built up and uh, considering the shadow shape uh, equation to the light shape, and kind of using that as a building block uh, for the gesture and proportion and, and the anatomy of the portraiture. But absolutely, you know, all the uh, the tools and organizing the palette and modeling of the form, all of these uh, elements that you can see kind of manifested in the portrait painting tutorials, of course, can be applied to different genres as well. Okay. Yeah, it's the same. So if I model a cheek, I'll use exactly the same uh, painting approach to if I'm modeling a vase, for example. Interesting. Okay, I'm sold. (laughs) I'm going to give it a try. I think maybe once I get past a few things, but... uh, Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to seeing you there. And just so you know, too, uh, I have... uh, There are several tiers on the Patreon page, so one can subscribe for the $5 or or $10, depending on uh, if one wants to see the uh, blocking stage or if you want to have access to all of the tutorials. But I also have uh, mentorship uh, tiers, so uh, which is a, a, with a limited supply, but where I meet with students online to discuss uh, their uh, specific projects. That's awesome. And so is it possible then you could move up to the mentorship, maybe three or four months in, you want mentorship for a couple of months, and then you want to drop down, people can do that easily. Yeah, absolutely. As long as it's available, one right. can basically sign up to it. Yeah, you only have so much time to do the mentorship. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But it really is uh, open to all levels, and uh, it's not restrictive to portraiture. I, um, like I said, I, I love still lives, and I have been teaching, you know, in the academic um, uh, environment for for many years. So all mediums are are welcome to, or drawing and painting. That's awesome. So I mean, this is perfect in these times, right? That people be able to access this material from home. You know, their art courses, local art courses may have been canceled uh, just simply because of of COVID and everything else. And so I just wanted to touch on this pandemic and how it's impacted you and and your feelings on it, especially for creatives. How have have you been through all of this and and in in trying to maintain your business, but also to be refilling your creative well um, and, and trying to be positive how has that gone for you since March and since it's hit us? Yeah, it's been certainly a roller coaster, and it's uh, of course a, a very difficult, very frustrating uh, time uh, for everyone. You know, there's not one person that is not affected by this, and uh, I think all in all, uh, my husband and I are extremely fortunate because we are able to uh, to keep up uh, our business and do what we love, and. We we were in uh, in Jersey City, uh, just across uh, Manhattan. You know when uh, everything started to shut down in in New York. Uh, so that was the fourteenth of March, 
Okay. And I remember waking up the 13th of March thinking, shouldn't we just be inside and isolating already? <laughs> <laughs> right. And and then, uh, yeah, from that point, we were, my husband and I were planning to move to Norway in the middle of uh, April. And then everything just uh got postponed and postponed and delayed. And we ended up being inside in, in this tiny apartment for four months. Oh, my. In, uh, in self-isolation. Yeah. And then eventually he uh, received his Norwegian residence permit and that uh, allowed us to, to finally journey to Norway. And we had planned to move here for some time. I'm a Norwegian, of course, and my parents are, are, are living nearby. And so uh, it has been quite a contrast for us. And, uh, of course, I'm partly grateful, uh, I think, for the experience of having been in New York at, the, at that time. But I can also say that because now it's at a distance. Uh, but being inside uh, for an apartment uh, with your husband for four months, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it has been great. In one hand, it's been great. It's been also, you know, incredibly difficult. Well, you know, the whole uh, processing of COVID and... Um, you know, the grief and the anxiety and all the emotions sort of associated uh, with that. So I, I had to deal with it through many tears and just release the emotions and permit myself to cry and to be sad and to kind of feel out the, the, the tension and the emotion. I'm also so grateful that we are in Norway now where we can be connected to nature, take uh, walks and that uh, I have always loved to be close to nature, but you know, the, the sort of sweetness of that experience have, have never been so profound as now. And maybe before I ask you about homework for our listeners, I want to maybe talk a little bit more about nature, because when we were communicating back and forth, it didn't take long for nature to come up as uh, as a topic. And obviously, I'm very inspired by it and foster it around where we live and try to provide access to it and make sure that we're giving back to the land that we took. Um, yeah. But I'm, I'm wondering so about your experience. And, you know, immediately you wouldn't think that portraiture is, is tied to nature, but you derive a lot of your inspiration from that, right? Like this is, nature is really important to you. And do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because I think, I don't think we get outside enough. And obviously with COVID, it's, it's challenging. And obviously if you're in an apartment, in you know, in New Jersey or in New York, it, it's really problematic. But can we talk about nature and and how it inspires you? You know, beyond just like the fresh air and the trees, but are there other elements? Are there other reasons that pull you out into the woods, uh, into your walks, and things like that? I think when taking a walk or being surrounded with nature, I. It almost becomes a bit of a, a a time portal. Like it could be any time. You almost connect it to the past. You know, you could be walking in this path of woodland, and it could be a hundred years ago or five hundred years ago. You know, it, it's that experience is very profound that we can kind of be connected with ourselves. You know, through through the portal of nature, in a way. There is also, I think, something very intrinsic about being surrounded with with for example well a landscape and walking through a landscape in that it is kind of what we come from you know we come from nature and i think as humans we uh, tend to be quite removed from that constantly through living in cities and going to a grocery store to acquire food etc so to keep 
that connection strong, I think is essential for the well-being of ourselves and the well-being of this planet moving forward. And I would really like to see also sort of changes occurring so that we can you know, heal rather than continue to destroy this planet. But also just on a, on a healthy, like a self-health health perspective, I think just being surrounded with trees and sky and air, and it is extremely centering and healing. Yeah, and I think a lot of people look at it like you have to be outside alone. And that's not necessarily what you need to be doing. You could be sharing it with, in your case, your husband or your significant other, your partner, or a group of friends, obviously distanced, but it's... I think regardless of how your day is going, when you're outside, you feel that you're part of something. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we we are made to be connected with nature just biologically, psychologically. You know, we are a result of, uh, of surviving and uh, as, as humans, you know, like the, our DNA, you know, stems from uh, living in nature. Yeah. Uh, and in an artistic uh, p- uh, perspective, I think it's an incredible source of inspiration. You now, just like now walking out in autumn and seeing that this dark, kind of purple, red, brown forest path, and then it's covered by all these leaves, you know, lime green, brown, purple, orange. Like, this is incredible color combinations. Right. Yeah. Um, is, it, is it your favorite time here? It is. It is my favorite season, yes. <laughs> And uh, my husband and I, we, we actually married in October as well. So this is a special month for us. Awesome. Yes, that's right. You had an anniversary not too long ago. I saw that on Instagram. So yes. happy belated anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it is a beautiful time of year. It's, uh, we talked just before we started recording, like the, the, the sky is, um, the, the amount of detail that's rendered just by this time of year with the lack humidity and yeah. and the wonderful trees. And I guess we both share the birch trees that are wonderfully yeah. yellow at this time of year and uh yeah um, absolutely yeah and then we have this giant uh, birch tree that we see from uh, from our window and uh it's like this town hall for all the birds in the neighborhood <laughs> <laughs> and they change places so sometimes yeah the smaller birds start crowding there sometimes you have the crows or the crows right and i just think that's so fascinating like all this sort of parallel dimension to our own that we can glean in a way we have some magpies living in the yard here as well and i just think it's it's so interesting to see what they're up to <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've i've never seen one but um because we don't I'm, I, we don't have them here i don't know how far north they come up but um i i've, I've heard that they can get into a little bit of trouble yeah, they're very curious. There was one that just jumped into my father's car. It was just open, parked, engine turned off, and it just wanted to go inside and explore. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, there's uh, there's an interesting article I, I stumbled upon, and maybe I'll include a link to it, but it talks about the psychological kind of benefits in being out in the wilderness. It was interesting because they do talk about, you know, that it provides us as humans, like autonomy, uh, competence, and, and relatedness. And... It's a, it's not a long article, but I just I think people need to understand and for those who know, like a good walk in the woods just helps to clear your mind. Just being able to read something like this and say, you know what, there's some science there to say that the way that you're enjoying it makes sense, right? And once again, you don't have to do it alone, but you know, you mentioned that you're a a social introvert and I'm an introvert as well. <laughs> 
And so it can be alone. It can be with a significant other, other or a partner, family, whatever the case, obviously distanced, but still it's easy to do that on a trail. I would agree. The more time we spend out there, I think the better it is for our planet, right? And better for art. Yeah. It's really fascinating too. When you see the, uh, uh, the different parts of the skeleton, if you do an echo shape, for example, just see kind of the, the skeleton in, uh, in sketches. Like the femur is created with this sort of S-curve. So it basically has this sort of spring uh, design, which is just so beautifully designed for the motion of walking in a way. And it's just really fascinating to kind of think about like the connection between how we are created, um, all animals, but also we as humans, how we are created and kind of shaped to... Um, to, for example, walk incredibly distances. Right, right. That's a very good point. And when, even when you look at uh, the birds and different types of birds, when you compare an eagle um, to something like a song sparrow and, and what they eat and where they live and all of that, it's uh, our environment has such an impact on that. And yeah, it, it does look intentional, but I think we have to celebrate that we're, we're all different, but we're all connected, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I remember in uh, Florence, there is this fantastic museum that is easily missed that is called uh, La Specula, which I believe means mirror. And it's a natural history museum, and they have like all the ocean creatures and, and all that as well. They also have these incredible wax sculptures, uh, ancient wax sculptures wow. <laughs> of, uh, of people. And they have this uh, uh, rather comprehensive uh, bone room that show all the different skeletons from different uh, animals. I think they have a whale skeleton. I think they have, maybe they have a rhino skeleton. They have all bats and mice and all of that. And they actually have uh, some human skeletons as well. And it's fascinating to see how you have like the skeleton of all these different animals and how it's just the same thing. It's just slightly different sort of um, versions of the same theme. I would agree with that. We have a, a museum here in Ottawa that has a blue whale a skeleton hanging in one of the exhibits and it's so funny you get up to it a whale dolphin whatever the case and you can see the hand yeah in the flippers right with the bones and yeah it's wonderful to to open your eyes and and to look and observe and see these connections yeah I've, this kind of reflect on a different manifestation of life exactly it's um i think it causes you to when you're drawing or when you're painting then you're maybe more sensitive to the structure that's underneath because I've been doing some kind of crazy comic type stuff for Inktober and I'm trying to do this as quickly as I can. So most of the drawings are under an hour and I'm trying to approximate what, well, today is, is, um, armor. So I'm trying to approximate what a turtle would look like standing up with a wooden sword. And so yeah. it's, it's such an interesting thought to kind of, um, work through that in your head and trying to understand how muscles and bones and all that would interact um, slightly modified from what they normally do. And yeah, uh, yeah. Combining yeah, I'm glad we, imagination with observation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm glad we were able to, to have a little bit of a conversation about nature because I, I do feel it's very powerful and it yeah. will always be that way. And if you're listening, get outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to end on, um, uh, I always ask my guest for a little bit of homework, something that uh, the listener can leave the podcast with as a bit of an idea that they may explore this evening uh, when they're listening or maybe the next weekend. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about some exercise or something they could do either for the first time or do differently. 
so there are so much you can do. <laughs> uh, would it require for you to buy a paint set? I think that would be fine. I think, you know, that would be what I would want to hear is if, let's say we have a paint set, what would we, uh, how, what would do we do with it? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that uh, making color studies are actually incredibly helpful. And it's something that I probably am partly guilty in not appreciating that much when I was a student myself. But I really see the value in it. And, and I, I love making color studies now. And so if you're just starting out painting, or even if you're comfortable uh, with painting, I think once in a while, make some color studies and use this to either warm up in the painting process. So if painting is completely new to you, a painting study is a great way to become comfortable with the medium of oil and to be and to create a context to explore some of the many elements that it can do. You can build texture with it as well. And it's a great way to just problem solve before you commit to a uh, larger project. And so for somebody who hasn't done a color study, what's the best way to pursue that, to approach it? Well, if you are making a color study, you need to, of course, have some format or some context for the composition so that you have a framework in which to apply the color to. But the drawing doesn't necessarily have to be millimeter accurate. I think at the forefront of a color study is to really explore color and value mixtures. And if you are new to oil paint overall, I think it's really helpful to also have a good palette and to uh, see the arrangement of the colors on the palette. So starting with uh, a row going from dark to light and then making some pre-mixtures as well so that you can mix a color and a value uh, for a specific area of the composition. And I'd advise to do that before you get into the painting process so you have some, some already laid out mixtures uh, to answer some of the color value questions and kind of use that to explore the composition with. Okay. So in, in this case, we're not focusing so, at all on the detail. We would be blocking in color and understanding those interactions on, on the canvas. Yeah, exactly. I mean, okay. a color study, it can uh, contain a number of things. And I, I like to really push uh, other aspects in my studies as well. So I tend to want to explore some resolution or form and maybe even some detail occasionally. But that's not what a color study has to be. So if color and value is completely new to, to you, just keep it simple so that you really just focus on what color and value can do. Because when you are working on a, a more demanding project, let's say a full-scale project, the first element to really keep intact is the element of the drawing I think so within the structure of painting you have to have the drawing in place and then you have the element of values because value express some sense of form and then we can talk about color and value and texture in a way that means that if if you if your color is a little bit off but your values are working really well and your drawing is really uh, is working really well the, the the painting can still work Right. But uh, in a color study, you can choose to include or omit the intricacy of the drawing accuracy and then really just uh, focus on nailing the color and the value. It sounds like it's the first <laughs> thing I should try. <laughs> I think it's really great because it gives you this uh, opportunity to really become comfortable. There is not any um, kind of huge stress or demand or expectation 
it can, it can really be a, a comfortable venue to enter into the realm of oil paint. And just warm up with a bunch of, of, of sketches, essentially. I think that's a really good point, because I think even when I'm drawing with pencil, I have this brand new white page, and I feel like I have to, I have to put something down that I could frame. Like it's it's hard just to sketch, just to doodle, right? And you know, a lot of people what they'll do is they'll get a new sketchbook and they'll just destroy the first page. Um, yeah, just to psychological. To, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so maybe going into uh, looking at a canvas and thinking this is just going to be a color study, like this is it. And so that way, because I think there's two challenges. One is you want to get everything right, and that's a challenge with an artist, right? Is just to get it right. And the other is. Yeah. When do you walk away and say it's done? So at least with both of those, if you're just saying it's a color study, both of those become much easier. And Absolutely. Uh, Psychologically. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's my advice. I'll have to uh, get myself a set and give it a try. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you don't need that many colors, really. You can just begin with uh, black, uh, titanium white. I would recommend titanium white if you're just starting to paint right. rather than lead white because uh, lead white is toxic. So I think it's great to have some experience with with oil paint uh, before when one get into the toxic colors. <laughs> <laughs> so I recommend uh, just ivory black, titanium white, and a ochre and a earth red. And that's basically what the Zorn palette is, although he used vermilion, which is another toxic color. But you can use uh, uh, an earth red, like Venetian red is beautiful. Okay. So that's, uh, that's helpful. I'm going to give that a shot. And this leads into the next point is you've got some wonderful stuff available through your Patreon. So people should go check that out. You've got, I think, four tiers available. Yes. Covering things from blocking right to the detail and to the mentorship components, which I think is brilliant. So I will include a link to your Patreon. Is there anything else? Is there anything coming up in the Patreon that we should keep an eye out for? So there will be a painting challenge released later this month where I'll be releasing a uh, step-by-step uh, uh, approach to a portrait that, uh, that is released this month. So for those who want to paint along, they can have a step-by-step approach to that. I do have students that paint along to the tutorials okay. to, to sort of extract tools from that experience. Okay. So yeah, there will be a painting challenge to look forward to for uh, subs- subscribers. And then at the end of the month, there will be a group critique. I'll, uh, I'm going to have to check that out. So I'll, I will include a link to your Patreon. And where else can people, obviously people can find you on Instagram. Yes, which is at uh, Cornelia Heines Artwork. Okay, and you have a website as well. Um, That's CorneliaHeines.com. Yeah, so I'll provide the links to all of that and uh, obviously everything that we've talked about through here. I'll inject things like, you know, a link to what the Zorn palette is and all this kind of stuff as well. So people have some reference in the show notes. That's awesome. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cornelia. I really enjoyed this talk. I thank you for making the time available from uh, Ottawa to Norway. Uh, Thank you so much. This it's has been, been uh, really fun. <laughs> yeah, it's been very fun. I've learned a lot. And uh, now I've got to fit in another creative endeavor into my <laughs> into my inking, into my drawing. I'm going to have to try oil, oil painting this winter. So You're going to love it, I'm sure. That's awesome. Yes, and you get to express those monarch butterflies with color as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it'll probably be my first or second thing is I think trying a monarch in oil. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been so enjoyable. You take care. Enjoy painting. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Show notes, including links to everything Cornelia and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 38. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to my newsletter on the website and share the podcast with someone you know.
and leave a rating in Apple Podcasts or a review. I'd love to hear from you. You can find links to the Patreon for the show and all my social media accounts at drawinginspiration.fm, including my Instagram, which is Mike underscore Hendley, where I post all my art. Follow me or tag me so I can see what you've created recently. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Until next time, be kind to one another and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.